0: Welcome to the latest installment of the Voices Project's dialogue series in which we examine important topics in the world of health and policy with a diverse variety of experts. The Voices Project, for our new listeners, is a neutral, independent, and non-profit platform that aims to produce deep insights and knowledge on public health issues in Asia, Pacific, and the rest of the world, which need to be rooted in local circumstances, experiences, and the divergences that we all live and experience every day uh, living our lives. Uh, Our belief and value system is by empowering voices, we seek to expand a collective understanding of how public healthcare issues can take form in a regional context and bring us more closer together and looking at our similarities rather than our differences. Well, this is going to be a really exciting episode, in particular, because we're going to be discussing something that many governments and many forums have been tackling with coming out of the pandemic, surely. But even prior to that, the question about patient engagement, or rather, should we say, the worrying lack thereof in Asian societies with regard to diagnostic, preventative, and routine healthcare and how that, in a way, may be risking or undermining health promotion efforts and rendering expansions in access to healthcare somewhat ineffective at improving health outcomes, and when we look at it, particularly within the Asia scenario, uh, the vulnerable populations. Today, we have with us Dr. Ratna Devi. Uh, she is the Chief Executive Officer of Dakshima Health, a nonprofit organization based in India, which aims to empower patients and caregivers with the right knowledge, tools and forums to seek and access healthcare options that can help suit their needs and through their voices, bring about a positive change in the healthcare environment. So you can understand why I'm actually quite excited because I think there's kindred spirits here. Uh, We're trying to find or navigate our way through what could become a a potential uh, ways forward around patient engagement and how that can actually be beneficial uh, towards healthcare outcomes. Um, Well, Dr. Devi, I think it would be great to hear about your organization's work and background in community health and engagement, but perhaps I can try and contextualize where that's also sitting, is that While healthcare systems in Asia, despite inequalities within the region are consistently improving the availability of healthcare interventions, patient engagement just hasn't been keeping pace. Uh, With focus disproportionately siphoned to either deploying healthcare infrastructure and creating access to health interventions, stimulating engagement on the part of communities, it's not been adequately prioritized in the region according to some studies and some work uh, that's been released uh, recently. So as such, what we're going to be discussing is the importance and the current state and the future of patient engagement within your experience and the purview of Asia. And with that, it'll be really great to hear more about the work that you're doing and particularly your background, which is absolutely absolutely exciting. Um, uh, Dr. Devi, would you like to say a few words on that?
1: Thank you, Rohit. And a very good morning to all our listeners uh, who are Uh, tuned in today to this episode. Um, I'm Dr. Ratna, as I have been introduced earlier. I have a specialization in public health, uh, over 30 years of uh, work experience. I started my career as a government uh, doctor working in a public health uh, space, and that was absolutely brilliant because it taught me the problems and the uh, struggles that a common man faces while uh, trying to access the healthcare system. I moved on to work in civil society in various roles, and that again was um, a deep learning uh, you know, exercise for me because I worked across maternal and child health, HIV, hep C, non-communicable diseases, rare diseases, and it gave me the exposure that no one institution can give you. And armed with this knowledge and experience, um, somewhere in 2011, I was very fortunate to have been invited to a high-level meeting of the UN on non-communicable diseases. And when I saw patients' uh, groups there and civil society talking about advocacy, I came back charged with energy. And I said, I need to do something in India. In those days, uh, a decade back, non-communicable diseases were just beginning to take some focus in healthcare systems. It was all communicable and maternal and child health before that. And I knew that uh, you know people with diabetes, people with hypertension were increasing manifold because of lifestyle changes. However, the healthcare system was not really ready to meet the, the new expectations of patients. So I searched around and couldn't find anything in the context of my country, and that motivated me to start my own organization uh, in 2012. 2012 was also a turning point because I was invited to a global patient Congress that was organized by the International Alliance of Patient Organizations, and that was truly a very um, stimulating experience because I saw hundreds and hundreds of patient groups and patient advocates Uh, who knew exactly what they wanted and who to talk to about what they wanted and how to get it done. Something I felt was very deeply missing in the context of my country. So when I started this organization, my aim was, um, you know, as Rohit, you rightly described, to empower patients with the right knowledge so that they are able to seek healthcare that is most appropriate for them and to be able to do that dialogue with policymakers and with their care providers to be able to express what they wanted and whether the healthcare system was actually functioning for them in the way they wanted it to. Um, We know that in the context of our region, um, Asia Pacific, Uh, It's a very paternalistic healthcare system where healthcare providers are treated with a lot of reverence, and patients don't really question decisions. And I wanted these people, uh, the patients, to really understand and own their condition, and through that ownership, be able to um, sort of decipher whether the Medications that were being provided to them are really working uh, instead of suffering in silence or going from one doctor to another and not getting the treatments that they deserve. So it's been a long journey since then. We've come a long way. There's still much to be done, I
0: would say. Absolutely. That's, that's, look, for our listeners, I appreciate that um, the experience that Dr. Devi is bringing to this conversation, therefore, means that we can tap into. Um, A a lot of that heritage, that rich heritage of what the last decade has been like, but more importantly, how are we going to navigate our way through uh, this post-pandemic or co-pandemic, whichever one uh, looks at it, uh, future within healthcare? Um, Dr. Devi, with these factors, as you've just explained, the the nuances of uh, countries like India in particular, um, what's, I guess, the big question, right? Uh, What's impacting patient and community engagement? there's many factors, obviously, that we've been hearing about, like cultural preconceptions, the demographic factors, you rightly mentioned, this more paternalistic aspect of, you know, uh, doctors know all, uh, urban, rural. What's what's your, I guess, experience in the issues facing patient and community engagement today?
1: Um uh- I think we can talk the whole day about the issues facing uh, community engagement or patient engagement, but let me just focus on maybe three or four, you know, uh, top factors, if I can say that. One, of course, is the health-seeking behavior and the health literacy. Uh, Considering that we are the uh, low and middle-income countries or low-income countries where priority is food on the table and trying to get a job that pays you for that food. Healthcare is always pushed, you know, towards the backbench. It's not a priority unless you are in severe pain or a crisis, which forces you to seek healthcare. Uh, so, given this context of where healthcare is not a priority, uh, preventive care doesn't really uh, figure on the list of people's minds, you know, on things to do today. And that, you know, is a vicious cycle because you reach a point where you have to. Uh, manage your healthcare condition because you can't stay at home any longer so you visit uh, a hospital and even if you do visit the hospital that has all the facilities and the ability to treat your condition you've reached uh, them at a point where they probably can't help you much and the damage is already done and therefore you suffer suffer the after effects of the condition uh, maybe lifelong disability or inability to earn because you can't put in your work hours and so it, it and then you cannot pay for that healthcare because healthcare is out of pocket in most cases. And uh, the public health infrastructure is not strong enough to meet the needs of the population here. Huge population density, which means long waiting times. And uh, that means that there is loss of wages. So people try to put off a doctor's visit to as long as possible until it is no longer bearable or it becomes an emergency, as I said before. So this is a cultural, geographic, economic context of this region. We are the largest populated region of the world. We all know India has a huge population. There are other countries uh, that are equally populated in this region. The health infrastructure is not the best. So if you see the doctor to uh, the population ratio or the nurse to population or pharmacist to population ratio, then we have the fewest of doctors. We have a multiple of, uh, you know, um, medicine systems uh, so there is the traditional medicine systems competing with the modern medicine systems and a lot of myths and misconceptions around modern medicine systems um, which drive patients to um, you know seek the traditional one before they actually go to the modern one so if you combine all this with the lack of health seeking behavior and um, health literacy it, it is a sort of a downhill uh you know slide Where people become sicker and sicker and are not able to afford the healthcare that they deserve. And therefore, you know, uh, a lot of people just give up and try and do whatever is best within their means uh, of uh, paying for that healthcare system. For the people, uh, again, not everybody is poor, not everybody cannot help, um, you know, afford healthcare. There are a lot of people who can afford healthcare. However, even for them, uh, health is not a priority. Uh, because we are, we uh, our traditional systems did teach us uh, a little bit of prevention. So if you see our rituals and customs, they tell you what to do in particular seasons to not fall sick. However, the the more educated younger generation, quote unquote, uh, treats them that uh, just as rituals. So they do not follow any of those measures, and the changing lifestyles have added to the woes. So all these fast foods, lack of exercise, air pollution, etc., is making the young younger generation sicker as well. But because they do not um, spend uh, or invest enough into preventative healthcare, you see more younger people having heart attacks or, or younger people having hypertension i see people in their 20s having hypertension because they are fixated in front of their laptops for 18 to 16 16 to 18 hours and are not taking any physical exercise at all and because you don't think that a sick person uh, you know could be that young or or somebody in their 20s early 20s could have hypertension Um, So the suspicion in the care provider's mind when this person reports sick is not to measure hypertension. So we do not have systems where routine checks, uh, you know, eliminate these kind of things at the first instance. So if a person is feeling tired, is uh, unable to concentrate, Um, you know, is not able to put in an eight-hour workday and and reaches a doctor, the doctor will not suspect that a 20-something will have hypertension. So there has to be a huge mindset change within the healthcare providers, within the younger generations, within the populations per se, to be able to manage healthcare in a way that makes them less sick and, and is able to give them the control of their health. Right now, I think we are in a spiral where people don't have control on their health you know it's it's a it's a vicious cycle where you fall sick you report to a doctor you take medicines you feel better for a short time you fall sick again because you're not really uh, taking care of the preventative part of it and then uh, maintaining that preventative part to a level where you are constantly checking yourself to see that you are not doing something that will make you sick so it's it's a very very complicated environment here the other part of it, uh, as I said, three or four things. So, the the other more important part of it is um, patient engagement is not seen as impart- important, or as part of the healthcare system. So, uh, if you if you see the engagement within policymakers, um, patients do not have a seat at the table. So they they are not generally asked to come and participate in discussions when you are you know, creating, say, treatment protocols, or uh, you are you are putting out guidelines on how to manage uh, a particular disease. Similarly, um, as I mentioned earlier, healthcare providers do not uh, have a dialogue. They just have a monologue. So um, they ask the patient what is wrong with them. They uh, write a series of tests. Um, they then come to a diagnosis, and then they uh, sort of instruct or advise the patient that this is the chart that they have to uh, follow. There is no follow-up after that. Very few doctors actually have regular follow-up. And again, the health systems do not allow the doctors to do a regular follow-up because we have paper-based prescriptions. We do not have electronic health records. We are not using technology to its advantage to send, say, SMS alerts uh, or other means of following up with patients. So usually follow-up is left to um, you know, maybe the nurses or other um, staff within the hospital. And sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And because there is no incentivization to the follow-up, even if you do receive a message saying, did you check your blood pressure after three months or did you do a refill of your diabetes medicine after three months, people generally ignore those alerts. So th- there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. Having said that, um, there is a positive, um, you know, uh, outcome that is happening in terms of patients getting more and more engaged, more and more patient groups forming and talking about their healthcare, discussing amongst themselves as to what is working for them and what is not working for them, and then in a positive way trying to engage with their healthcare providers as well with uh, with policymakers in questioning. Why certain systems are not available, or why certain diagnostics are not available within the context of their country, or even innovative medicines not being available, and driving that policy change to bring in that within the access of the common man. So, yes, there are a lot of challenges, but we are also moving forward in a positive way.
0: Very true, very true. Now, if you if break that down, because I think we have very critical uh, perspectives there, I think. Um, what you mentioned in terms of the uh, lack of, let's say, or uh, uh, understanding of benefits of preventative health for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into, It is also, isn't there this interesting sort of gender inequity uh, dynamic? Uh, there were some statistics that showed, uh, regardless of you know uh, those a, at a younger age being screened for hypertension or such like, uh, women in particular, um, because of the uh, uh, cardiovascular symptoms being very different are actually completely ignored. And therefore, I think I was reading somewhere that there's a higher mortality uh, in women than there are men, uh, simply because of this fact that, you know, we're just not looking deep enough when it comes to signals and signs. So in all of that sort of perspective, it just seems that there are, that there's a variety of different um, challenges and issues. But as you said, that there's at least the momentum and, 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 and some positivity coming out of it. Now, let me overlay something on top of what you just said. And that is, We talk about acute illnesses and the ability to prevent acute disruptive illnesses, uh, but then those things that are more chronic in nature, the ones that have much more of a longer term risk behind it. And uh, you, you talked and mentioned about diabetes or other metabolic syndromes, et cetera. And the reality that we just don't look at those early on enough through a diagnostic perspective but there's also the fact that a patient's journey or a diagnostic journey or a disease pathway in our health systems just seem to go across such a variety of stakeholders. So whether it's the public health system moving into the private system, whether it's uh, different healthcare providers treating one particular type of uh, aspect of that you know disease pathway or that patient, caregivers, medical companies, of course, from a financial perspective, advocacy groups, patient organizations, Is there possibly also the need to look at the linking up of a more comprehensive supportive care uh, system that can in a way encourage uh, better or a bit more of an attuned uh, engagement factors where there might be none from a patient perspective?
1: I certainly do agree that we should have a more integrated approach. Um, You know, in discussions after discussions, we realize how fragmented our healthcare system is and how, um, you know, vertical or silo-based system uh, we work in. And um, just to give you a perspective, when I was working with uh, patients with Parkinson's, uh, we were trying to uh, work with neurologists to be able to Um, you know, uh, get into India um, a surgical procedure that was unavailable to most people because it was too expensive and we were trying to advocate for inclusion into insurance, both public and private sector. And even though I'm a qualified medical professional, I realize that not all neurologists treat Parkinson's, especially for the surgical part of it. And that they have specialties within the neurologist themselves. So there is a new movement disorder specialist and there is an epilepsy specialist. And then you have a strokeologist and uh, you have the general neurologist. And this is mind boggling. How on earth is a common man supposed to know which neurologist they are supposed to go to you know, first of all, reaching a neurologist is difficult because for a population like India, you hardly have any neurologists, maybe 3,000 or so for the 1.3 billion. So, if you are lucky enough to reach a neurologist, how on earth are you supposed to know which neurologist is the one who, will, who can treat you for the condition that you have? So, there is a huge lack of knowledge. Uh, and also, I think this super specialization is, you know, very, very detrimental from the patient perspective. For so the doctor's perspective, yes, we understand that certain procedures need more specialized training, and we absolutely accept that. But I think uh, the hospital should be able to deal with which patient should uh, go to which specialist, not the patient trying to search for the specialist on his or her own, uh, you know, a uh, means. So, I, I, and for that to happen, we need to have integrated healthcare systems. However, our healthcare systems are very complicated. So you have standalone hospitals with one speciality, you have multi-speciality hospitals, uh, you have these big universities with medical colleges where you get everything under the sun. And not all are within the reach of every person. And for critical uh, you know, um, journeys, especially things like stroke, heart attack, um, you know, for cancer, etc., um, usually they are placed in big metropolitan cities and the patient meanders through a lot of different journeys before they reach the right place and get the right diagnosis and the treatment. And this is more uh, painful than actually the diagnosis and the treatment. Once you have a diagnosis, you sort of settle down and you know this is the path forward. But the journey to that diagnosis is so difficult that sometimes the delay is critical and may cost the life of the person. So I think integrated healthcare systems with robust referral pathways is extremely important. We do a lot of talking about primary healthcare becoming more robust and driving universal health coverage, but that is really lacking in most countries. Even in the most developed countries, you see that you know there are bits and pieces where things are not really straightforward. And in countries like India, where you know you have huge population issues and, of course, uh, the investment in healthcare is not as great. Um, It is even more difficult. And then uh, we also, you know, one of my work is to see that uh, access to innovative diagnostics and uh, innovative medicines, it becomes easier for patients. Yeah. And our experience has been that uh, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of, um, you know, Pharmaceuticals or the Department of Pharmaceuticals do not speak with each other. Mm. Whereas the common factor is the patient. the The patient needs the healthcare system, which provides the medicines that they need. So they they these two ministries work in, uh, you know, silos. Um, Again, you know, um, nutrition is an integral part of any cure. If you do not have the right food, uh, or you do not have enough food, then any amount of medicine is not going to cure you. However, the Ministry of Agriculture or other such departments that are very integral to uh, good health do not talk to each other. And we've heard so much about multi-sectoral action plan in the context of non-communicable diseases. There are beautiful documents that sit with the ministry of what exactly this multi-sectoral action plan looks like. But when it comes to reality, nothing much has happened beyond the document. And I think it is extremely important that uh, more focus is there on how to integrate the healthcare system. Not only at the delivery level, which is the hospitals and the healthcare care providers, but also in the design and the policy level. Unless you're thinking of the design, it's very hard to, you know, have the healthcare system that's in bits and pieces and then tell people, look here, you all need to work together. It's not going to happen. It will never happen. So I think the design or the policy part of it should focus more on integration. And once that happens, the patients can bring in their perspectives on where things are working well. And uh, it's an easy uh, journey for them. And where things are not working that well, and there is a uh, you know problem or a challenge, and give that feedback so that those uh, gaps can then be covered and things can be worked out better.
0: Yeah, that's 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 such an interesting thought there because the value of integration um, is something that is almost you, if you don't have the if you don't have integration put together, it's not going to happen. But if you don't value the benefits that the integration can provide then why would anyone want to invest in it in the first place? It's almost like a chicken and the egg story. But let me do back to something you said earlier, and that was the particular sort of nuances. And in a way, our own relationships with this perceived disease that will afflict us one day and will you know, ruin us financially and our lives, et cetera. The, it, isn't it interesting that sometimes it's the lack of understanding of the of what that disease is. So let's talk about oncology for a minute. So you talk about neurology or oncology, etc. But certain screening, certain certain uh, approaches to almost preempt the issues that ultimately become really, really like the things of cancer that people are also scared of. But the reality that there's almost like I don't want to know what I don't want to know. <laughs> um, you know, the, the there was a very interesting study that was done that said the awful wait between the time that somebody gets a diagnostic or a test done and those 48 hours or the 72 hours before the results come in the actual walk or the call from the doctor please come in you know and you have to have this talk it's apparently something that is 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 extremely fraught with emotional pressures worry all of that now with all of that in play is it then, therefore, no surprise that as much as policy shaping and policy making and policy distribution will be attempted to be done and the integration values, if fundamentally um, patients and their caregivers are like would prefer to just not know the risk factors simply because they're not so cued in on the sort of screening availabilities, the the ease of screening, the speed of screening, the accuracy, the earlier you see it. Do you, do you think that in a way that's almost like the make or break, you know, people just aren't looking at the value of what uh, diagnostic or preventative medicine could be, or is that asking too much of patients? I'm not sure.
1: No, I think that's the absolute right path to tread on, um, you know, especially with uh, with healthcare becoming so ex- expensive. Um, it's best, you know, they say that uh, if you have health, you are the most wealthiest man on earth, man or woman on earth. So being healthy means that you are constantly checking. Um, it, it's it's like uh, taking your car after you buy it for your annual checks. And you you know the first three ones come free and then you uh, after every 10,000 kilometers, you have to pay for it. But most people ignore that as well. But there are many these days uh, who have realized that if you do that, then probably your costs of maintenance later come down. A similar analogy, uh, analogy can be applied to human beings as well. You know, if, if you're constantly checking, and you know that after 35, you should be checking for diabetes and hypertension. After 40, for women, you should have a pap smear and a breast exam. Everybody knows this. At least most educated people know it. But then uh, I think the alarm in their um, mind or brains doesn't go off till something happens to them. And they don't realize that if they had done a little bit of investigation every year, uh, they could have probably caught, if they are unfortunate enough to have uh, some kind of disease manifestation, they would have probably caught it early enough before it makes them sick. You can be a diabetic and never be sick. You just take medicines regularly and live a normal life. I've seen millions of people do that because they just do their you know exercise every day, they are conscious about the diet they take and then they take their medicines on time. and they never visit a hospital. They're just on maintenance medicines. Similar is the case for hypertension. Uh, if you c- catch it on time, you do the right things to maintain your blood, sh- blood uh, pressure. You never have a stroke or, or any other complications of hypertension. And you can live up to 90 with hypertension without any complications. However, most people do not realize the value of regular checkups and diagnostics to be able to prevent the catastrophic event. And I think that is where public awareness is very, very important. Huge awareness programs on why it is important to prevent anything from happening rather than treat something that's already happened uh, is extremely important. And I think, in a way, this is because healthcare has always been driven by the curative part of it and not the preventative part of it. And the curative part of it is um, because, you know, the, the patients didn't have a voice it's the doctors who always spoke about what to do once you are sick most doctors don't tell you what to do not to fall sick that a dialogue has been changing now because of a lot of uh, you know very passionate doctors especially in cardiovascular and other areas who, who feel really bad when they are not able to help patients so they have become public health advocates And they really tell you what to do not to fall sick or even if you fall sick and you are uh, detected early enough, uh, you know what to do to stop any other secondary complications. A lot of people, a lot of doctors and healthcare providers now do that as part of routine counseling. However, that's not enough because not many people or not everybody who falls sick actually visits a doctor. They try medications on their own. They try all their, uh, you know, advice that their neighbors or their family members give them. And it's only when none of this works do they visit a doctor. So we need to have a communication system or a communication strategy that tells people what to do to be able to prevent, uh, you know, sicknesses. And uh, in many of the developed countries, this is driven through employers where, you know, health insurance is provided. It's mandatory to provide health insurance through employers, and uh, those insurances are incentivized if you do not fall sick or, you know, you have to have a copay if you fall sick, whichever way. It tells you that, you know, I have to pay from my pocket if I don't take care of my health, and that drives good behavior. Uh, not 100% foolproof, but at least some people will, will follow good habits. I think that is extremely necessary now, considering that the health systems will never be able to catch up with the demand that is there. More and more people are falling sick, not necessarily because of their own free will, because you know the changes in environment, all the carcinogens in the air, water pollution, everything, new diseases, new and emerging viruses, etc., will make you sick one day. So how do you build yourself to be able to face, uh, you know, those catastrophes? Because if you have comorbidities, you probably will not fare well. Uh, Or if you are young and you have no comorbidities, you probably will have a better outcome. So how can people maintain their health so that something that can be prevented will be prevented? Something that cannot be prevented is detected early enough so that you're able to manage it well and the outcome of all of this is that you have a fairly good quality of life so that you're not dependent on anyone whether it is the community or your spouse or your family members you have a dignified life to the best of your ability and that can only be done if you concentrate on prevention and maintenance of your health
0: absolutely correct i mean the a lot's been spoken about the reality that uh, the term financial toxicity has been used a lot more in the last uh, few years than it ever has before usually around areas of cancer and you know management of cancer and the lack of sometimes cohesive policies that says right we've got the diagnostic bit done we've got the treatment bit done but the rest of it how are you going to pay your bills how are you going to live your life how are you going to manage your job your you know Caregivers, all that is basically left in the middle. And some are saying that perhaps now, more so than ever, uh, factors related to financial toxicity may have an impact on the reality that, you know, sure, one can look after you know oneself and do all of the preventative aspects. But again, um, will can I afford the disease that I've been given? And therefore, does it keep you in the denial process for much longer? But Again, these are these are situations and topics for a much longer uh, discussion. But any any thoughts around the aspect of financial toxicity in, in, in your purview that's been coming up perhaps in, in certain topics or discussions?
1: Um, it you know, healthcare is expensive. There are no two opinions about that. Uh, however, I think one can manage the expenses of the healthcare if they plan well enough. Um, So health insurance is a must. Most people think, you know, you pay year after year without falling sick and that's a waste. It's never a waste. And this is what I tell all my patient groups. Invest in an insurance policy that is adequate for you, because if you have an insurance policy that will not see you through a healthcare uh, catastrophe, there's no point in investing in it. So invest in a healthcare policy that's uh, adequate for you. Do not discontinue, um, you know, do it every year, year after year in fact i would say that as soon as a child is born there should be an insurance policy in his or her name which then supports that person when the person is 60 or 70 or whenever they fall sick because most healthcare expenses unless of course it's uh, things like cancer etc happen towards the later part of your life and with longevity increasing that's when you end up spending all your uh, you know spending all your uh, savings that you had a whole lifetime to accumulate so I think health insurance is extremely important. And when you have an adequate health insurance, along with um, preventative measures that, um, you know, you do year after year to see that um, either you're not falling ill or if you're falling ill is detected early enough to be able to manage it well, the financial toxicity can be managed very well. Right now, the financial toxicity is an outcome of low health literacy, low health seeking behavior, no investment in healthcare, care and this uh, general perception of people that the government has to pay for everything. I think that's a wrong perception. Uh, you know, you invest in everything else. You invest in education, you invest in uh, housing, you invest in transport. Why would you not invest for your own health care? Um, and if you do it in small amounts and small incremental amounts uh, over 30, 40 years of your investment, it will be enough for uh, you to be able to manage without the toxicity that we are talking about. Yes, there will always be populations that cannot afford even those small amounts. And for that, the government should always be there to support them. But for people who can pay who can afford, I think they should start early and keep investing so that when they have a crisis or when they need that insurance policy, it is there to stand by them. Mm -hmm. Having said that, insurances have not been very good in terms of the offerings that they have to patients. And um, there is a lot of distrust and mistrust in the insurance. So I think the insurance sector has a lot to do in terms of winning the trust of the people that they are selling their products to, make those products more comprehensive so that, you know, um the policy that you take has uh, less of uh, you know uh, diseases that are not covered than diseases that are covered and the language is simpler for people to understand even for people who understand insurance a little bit it is very hard to un- uh, to decipher a policy and understand you know what those exclusions are and what the inclusions are because they are written in a language that is almost impossible to read and so many uh, you know um, lines between the lines if i can say that so i think the insurance sector needs to become a little more transparent and and uh, offer products that are really valuable and and people would want to invest in and win the trust so that more and more people start investing i think that is the solution to the crisis that we have in healthcare now Uh, If we expect governments to take on the owners for 100% of populations, that's going to be extremely difficult Um, with the kind of new diseases that are coming in, with the changes in genomic uh, structures that are happening because of various reasons, it's going to be extremely difficult to meet every person's desire on what Um, optimum healthcare is. So a basic minimum package can always be offered. People who are poor and who cannot afford can always be provided services, but people who can pay should pay and should start investing as early as possible. Uh, That would be my message to patients and patient groups.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, you're inspiring something that has been a recurring uh, theme on on, 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 on these uh, dialogue series. And that is the role or rather the absence of in terms of uh, insurance and providers, uh, to look at a more holistic approach, you, you always find there to be more exclusions than inclusions in those critical moments in a disease pathway. And there is hand has to be a role uh, from an insurance perspective. Do, Dr. Devi from this perspective you've you've provided around the realizations of systemic changes, the necessity for inclusion of vital stakeholders, the coming together almost, the interoperability, if one can say, of achieving a positive outcome across patients, caregivers, health services, and fundamentally economies, it would be really interesting to hear any recommendations or perhaps experiences that you may have in terms of these priorities and perspectives and and what could allow for uh, uh, stakeholders to adopt a more stimulating patient engagement? Are, Are there any early signals or perhaps any examples that you may have to share?
1: I think evidence-based medicine has now become a norm um, and more and more governments, as well as healthcare providers and professional associations have started to realize that you might be giving them the best medicines and the best diagnostics, but if the patient is not happy with the outcome, you're not going to achieve much uh, because uh, quality of life is important. It's not just the clinical outcomes that you measure. And a very uh, simple example is uh, if you have given a medicine to manage your hypertension and the clinical outcome is that you are within the baseline parameters, but you have a splitting headache that does not allow you to work in your office, it's of no use to the patient because uh, yes, clinically he is fit and fine, but uh, physically he is not happy. He is not able to manage his life. So evidence-based medicine where patient reported outcomes and uh, patient experiences are important is gathering a lot of momentum. It Started with the pharmaceutical industry as part of clinical trials, but now it is coming more and more into treatment protocols as well. And once this becomes the norm, I think more and more people and stakeholders will start coming together to see what really matters to patients and start working around building a healthcare system that provides the best experience, um, you know, quote unquote. So I won't say the best experience in terms of a five-star experience or a seven-star experience in a hospital, but can the patient really visit a healthcare center or a healthcare provider and work out happy? saying that yes, uh, the doctor gave the best, the healthcare system Mm -hmm. gave the best. Uh, It is now upon me to see how I take this journey forward and what can I do to get the best outcomes out of it in terms of managing the advice that the doctor has given, taking the treatment on time, because adherence, again, is a very big issue. Uh, So taking the treatment on time, not giving up on medicines, and then going back for checkups. Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot of value in this, and that can happen when uh, people start listening to what the patients are saying. So it is already happening. You see the um, policymakers listening. You see organizations like the World Health Organization listening and convening meetings where they're calling people with lived experience to listen to their views on what they think is the best way to move forward. Uh, You are hearing multinationals uh, and a lot of large civil society organizations like the Gates or the Rockefellers and uh, the Wellcome Trust coming together. So there's a positive change. However, because healthcare is so emotional and personal, um, you know, things will um, take time uh, before we reach a point where everyone is happy. But it's work in progress, and I'm very positive about it.
0: That's right. It's, it's really the journey that matters and making the best of that journey. Um, you, yes. I think you mentioned something quite interesting earlier in terms of the policymakers who matter and perhaps the lack of dialogue between Key uh, ministries and key you know, sort of uh, interlocutors that should be there, the Ministry of Health, the pharmaceuticals, et cetera. Um, what would your message be? What would be some sort of a uh, demand or request, if one we could make, uh, to increase this sort of level of understanding on, on engagement? Um, what, what 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 should our policymakers be really looking at? Is it re- being more multilateral is it about being more open is it being looking at innovation technology or is it all of the above <laughs> any any thoughts to that i think it's a simple
1: you know if i had to put it in a simple statement it is um, the eyes will not see what the mind does not know uh, so most of our policymakers are not trained to understand what patient engagement means or what patient empowerment means And usually they change when they see the patients and patient groups and listen to them and listen to their journeys, you know. Real life experiences, whether in terms of videos or blogs and all can be very, very, um, you know, uh, powerful in terms of changing the mindset and the thought process of policymakers. And as patient groups, we have seen that it works wonders, especially when you get a real patient in the room talking about their journey through the healthcare system. So I think one suggestion would be that As part of their formal training, they should be exposed to patient groups and patient uh, experiences. You know, just get a patient in the room and listen to them before they sign on any policy document or uh, listen to a patient group. And uh, some of those misconceptions that policymakers had, especially in the context of developing countries, is that patient groups are activists Mm -hmm. and that they are demanding everything for free. That is no longer true. Uh, many patient groups are now saying yes we can pay but we need the quality that we deserve so uh, once that has changed once once the ask has changed from the patient groups i think it's time that everybody sat together and uh, and some kind of exposure to what patient advocacy means or a formal training on what patient advocacy means would Work wonders because that's what has changed uh, policymakers in our experience. Whenever we have gone to a bureaucrat and and explained or shown a video or brought a patient into the room, it's done wonders. Um, you know, they they become very empathetic. They can understand what we are trying to tell them, and and all the barriers come down. In fact, they become friends, and they give us opportunities to look for solutions. So I think a lot good a lot of good can be done. If the person understands what we are asking uh, and and not sitting at the opposite ends of the table trying to
0: negotiate,
1: I think it should be um, working hand in hand instead of working across the table trying to negotiate terms and conditions.
0: That's so well put actually. It shouldn't be a negotiation as much as saying, all right, let's try and embrace each other's positions and situations and particularly what's going on within the patient's um, lives really sometimes. Dr. Devi, I think as we come up to our hour, it's, it will be so wonderful to hear, I guess, in a summary and your perspective that in looking at all of these uh, perspectives and challenges and opportunities, what would then sort of be the recommendations or outcomes that you might see in increasing interest or access to that realization of earlier recognition, the earlier detection, the earlier diagnostics? Is there a is there I was going to say is there is there a magic key? but obviously there isn't. Uh, but what would be your wish list if there were to be one? Um,
1: so health is a is a state subject, as they say in in the World Health Organization. So at the end of the day, the countries have to decide how they want to uh, deliver their health care to the populations so i think i'll start with that by saying you know if if you want populations to be healthier um, you have to provide them with the right information most people struggle to find the right information so maybe something that is authentic um and like a CDC for example you know if you went to a CDC center you would never question any of the information there so something that is authentic and people can trust in and are able to search for in their local languages because usually information is available in English and that not, that is not accessible to many uh, you know people in in this part of the world because of the varied languages so access to information I think is very important um, access to of course the early diagnostics but then more importantly where these diagnostics and hospitals are available that is again there is a huge information in as asymmetry in you know I need this but where do I get it even if I stay in a metro uh, it is all not always true that the nearest hospital has all the facilities so some kind of a search mechanism or a or a directory where If I experience a heart attack at 3 a.m. at night, you know, early morning, where do I go? Which is the nearest hospital? Is there a doctor available there? How can I get this information? And coming to this, maybe, you know, um, use technology to advantage uh, to make this kind of information available. And then a massive awareness campaign on why preventative health is important. Um, That's Possibly can be supplemented with some kind of incentivization. So if you stay healthy, you you are doing your checkups every year uh, and you don't report sick uh, to a hospital, then probably you maybe get a higher salary or, um, you know, pay less premium for your insurance or you get a education waiver for your children. Some kind of incentivization so that people get a positive vibe out of all of this. Now, uh, if we can do some some of these things, I think we have a positive future. Uh, though you know it's going to take time, but we have to start somewhere, and better start today than never.
0: Absolutely, that's those are some great great closing words, um, listeners. You were uh, listening to Dr. Ratna Devi, uh, the Chief Executive Officer at Dakshma Health. You can find out more about Dakshma Health in the uh, box below um, the link here. You can definitely understand a lot of the nuances that Dr. Devi was expressing, not just from the Indian context, but an overall, I think almost a uh, a regional, if not global uh, line of thinking as well. A lot of this uh, links back to WHO's own um, priorities for SDGs 2030, et cetera. And uh, for those of our listeners in the academic and in the uh, industry itself in development sectors, there's a lot of literature um, and access to resources that you can find. Uh, particularly on WHO resources. You can also find out more about what uh, the initiative here is all about at the VoicesProjectAsia.org. Dr. Devi, thank you so much for making this time. Um, I do believe, and I think we would talk about this separately, that this is the beginning of a very valuable discussion, um, not just one of the one-off uh, conversations, but something that needs to be continued and really build a framework around. And, and I look forward to that opportunity of working closely with you um, on that thank you so much uh, dr Devi and thank you listeners for all that great feedback you give and continue to tune in thank you so much everybody and we'll speak to you soon thank you thank you
1: rovi